Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to The Bunker USA. I am your host, Alex Andreu. We're no longer in the September 11th era, we're now in the January 6th era. Those are the words of Oliver Malloy, the German-American novelist, after the 2021 attack on the Capitol. My guest today was the chief legal analyst at CNN for longer than is polite to point out, and the author of nine acclaimed books. His latest, entitled Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism is out now and it charged the arc between the Oklahoma City bombing and the current crop of right-wing extremists. Welcome to The Bunker, Jeffrey Tubin. Thank you, Alex. Jeffrey, you write that events on January 6th show how McVeigh's values, views and tactics have endured and even flourished which makes his story not just a glimpse of the past, but also a warning about the future. Have you lost half your audience merely by virtue of that opening claim? Well, gi- given the way um, the, the news media has evolved in the United States, half the audience wouldn't even consider listening to anything I have to say uh, <laughs> on, on any form of communication. So I don't, I, I, th- that's, you know, sadly, uh, a lost cause already, I, I, I fear. Be that as it may, um, I just try to t- tell the truth and, and uh, see what I, you know, and, and say what I find. And the symmetries and the connections between the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995 and the insurrection on January 6th, 2021, and the continuing right-wing extremism that we see in our country is... Um, you know, it, it is something that to me is inescapable. I'm very interested in particular in the tactics aspect of that central thesis, right? Because it it is not one that I had thought of, about particularly deeply. Can you expand a little, a little in how McVeigh provided, in some ways, I guess, a sort of blueprint for this sort of thing? Timothy McVeigh was um, a U.S. Army veteran, and uh, he had a partner and co-conspirator named Terry Nichols, who they both met in the army. And they became progressively more alienated from not American life, but the federal government in the mid-90s. You know, I think one mistake that people have made in talking about McVeigh uh, in subsequent years is as if he was some sort of anarchist or 
or lone wolf. And I think that's a, that's a big uh, mistake. He was part of the right-wing anger and rebellion against Bill Clinton in the 90s. He was a dedicated listener to Rush Limbaugh, um, the uh, celebrated slash notorious radio host of that era. He was part of, of that movement, and he was obsessed uh, in particular with the place of guns in American life. He was inspired by a terrible dystopian novel called The Turner Diaries, uh, where um, the protagonist, Earl Turner, fearing that the federal government is going to take away all the guns in private possession in the United States, sets off a bomb uh, at the FBI building in Washington, D.C., a truck bomb. And that leads to a rebellion against the evil federal government. McVeigh modeled what he did uh, in Oklahoma City on what Earl Turner did in, in that novel. And the idea was that violence, this act of violence, uh, in this case a bombing, would lead to a broader rebellion that would protect, above all, uh, the right to bear arms in the United States. If you look at what happened on January 6th and other uh, examples of right-wing extremism, the issue of guns is always central. This This idea... that uh, we have to take violent action or the federal government will begin to confiscate firearms in the United States. That is uh, central to to the ideology uh, behind all this right-wing, much of this right-wing extremism. And that's that's the tactical connection that I draw in the the book. Do you think America's heritage, its cultural past, as a sort of frontier country, is so deeply ingrained in in its DNA that the notion that you might be deprived of the arms to guard your homestead, as as it were, is a key reason that drives people to the fringes. The American fixation with guns is obviously a major, major topic and something that, you know, there, there are many theories about. But, but you talk about, I'd just like to draw on something you mentioned about the history. You know, a, another aspect of McVeigh's motivation and, and, and an idea that went forward is his identification with the American Revolution. You know, mm. McVeigh had the Declaration of Independence memorized. And the Declaration of Independence has a very famous opening statement. Uh, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Many, many people know that. But it's actually a long list of grievances against the king. McVeigh felt that just as the Americans' um, colonists re- rebelled against the corrupt British king, he had the right and obligation to rebel against the corrupt and evil federal government. That is a theme that you see throughout right-wing extremism, including especially on January 6th. The the prologue of my book is called 1776, and it features many of the insurrectionists in the Capitol analogizing their, their effort and claiming the legacy of the American Revolution. So I think... You know, that that is part of it. And, and, and I think the ability to bear arms against the government is something that that has deep chords in in certain corners of American life. 
Yes, I'm, I'm reading here that McVeigh himself said, said that he wanted a country that operates like it did 150 years ago. Um, and, and you do mention that, that he, he avoids any kind of uh, acknowledgement of slavery <laughs> at that point. There's always this nostalgia about a time back then which was great for someone like McVeigh, perhaps, but was not so good for a lot of other people, right? Well, and and remember, um, Donald Trump's most famous catchphrase: "Make America uh, MAGA, great again." Make America great again. And you know what? What he never really has answered is what is precisely the period you want to go back to. Uh-huh. Uh, what when? When was America great? Because you know, yes, I'm a patriotic American like many others, but at each earlier stage of American history, there were grievous, grievous problems with this country, uh, especially going back 150 years, which was the number McVeigh put on it when slavery was still in existence. But but this backward-looking idea that there was some golden era in the past is, again, another idea um, that, that shows the continuity between McVeigh and uh, later, later extremists. In some ways, the story starts even earlier, really, with Waco and and Ruby Ridge, and and I wanted to ask you what significance, if any, would you attach to the fact that Trump kicked off his current presidential primary campaign at Waco, pretty much on the thirtieth anniversary of that standoff? Absolutely, I I don't think that was a coincidence. On April 19th, 1993, uh, almost exactly 30 years ago, uh, the FBI was conducting a siege of a compound led by a, a group of religious extremists called the Branch Davidians. They were holed up there with an enormous amount of weapons. Uh, there had been an earlier confrontation where several uh, Police officers were killed, as well as several Branch Davidians. The FBI, who was in charge at that point, uh, injected tear gas into the compound. Uh, A fire ensued, and 76 people, including a number of children, were killed in the compound. It was an awful, awful uh, event. Who who was ultimately ultimately responsible is something that is being debated to this day. However, uh, McVeigh uh, viewed Waco as the perfect symbol of uh, the evil of the contemporary federal government. He blamed Bill Clinton. He blamed uh, the federal government for the deaths of those 76 people. And that was a direct inspiration to him because the Oklahoma City bombing was precisely two years later, uh, intentionally on the anniversary. But I think it's important to raise just one more point about McVeigh's motivation, because I think a lot of people remember that he was associated with Waco. But just as important as Waco was to him, on September 13th, 1994, a few months earlier, Bill Clinton had signed a law banning assault weapons. And that was equally outrageous to McVeigh, again, going back to this gun obsession. So it wasn't just Waco. The issue of of guns and private access to guns was was central to his motivations throughout. Now, unlike other books on the subject, because there have been other books on the subject, they sort of devote a section to McVeigh, but, but your 
book uses the McVeigh story as its spine, almost. It, it, it is from there that offshoots materialize, basically. And you actually covered the legal proceedings for the New Yorker, I think, didn't you? And ABC News then, yes. I covered uh, McVeigh and Nichols. Uh, the bombing was 95. Uh, they were tried. The trial was moved to Denver to avoid you know, so much pretrial publicity, but I covered the trial in the two trials in Denver in, in 1997. What is your most abiding memory of those proceedings? Did you have that moment when you look at the, the face of that person that has done this unspeakable thing and you either see something extraordinary or even more frighteningly, you see something very ordinary? I do have uh, two distinct memories uh, because for legal reasons, they were tried separately. Terry Nichols was, uh, to use a, a great American phrase, a mope, a nobody, a follower. He was not someone uh, who would have done this uh, left to his own devices, though he did assist McVeigh. McVeigh was very different. And that's, that's my main memory of the trial, was that there was an evil charisma about McVeigh. This was a man on a mission. This was a man who was uh, enormously uh, devoted to his task, engaged in incredible amounts of planning and strategizing to pull off this bombing, which was not easy to do. And that's why his story, as, as you say, is, is the spine of homegrown. There, there are aspects of McVeigh's life, Nichols too, that are emblematic of bigger problems in the United States, but they are also distinctive personalities. And uh, McVeigh is, is one that, that I found evil, but very interesting. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Tangentially, Jeffrey, can I ask you, were, were they associated with any group, larger groups, as it were, at the time? And do any of those groups still exist, still in operation? Well, you know, what motivated me to write this book in the first place, as I said, you know, I, I covered the case going back to, to 97, but, you know, it had been lodged in my brain, but, but in, in the far recesses. In October of 2020, just before the, the election, a plot was revealed in Michigan to kidnap the governor of Michigan named Gretchen Whitmer. They, the, there was the, a right-wing group called the Michigan Militia was uh, planning to kidnap her and conduct some sort of trial of her. It was, a, it was a mad but very dangerous idea, and they had proceeded in, uh, to, to move this plot along uh, pretty far when the FBI arrested them. Terry Nichols, the other defendant, was from Michigan, and he was affiliated with the Michigan militia. When that plot was brought down, I said to myself, having covered the Oklahoma City bombing, I know these people. I, I, I know what they believe. And I found that some of the Michigan militias from the 90s were still involved. 
uh, almost almost 30 years later. McVeigh and Nichols themselves were not part of a larger conspiracy. This has been a big topic uh, of, of investigation um, for many years in the United States. I, my belief is they did act alone. They were not acting as part of a group that was assisting them with the bombing, but they were part of a larger uh, political force in the country that is very much an enduring one. McVeigh wanted to take credit for the attack which would have left him pretty much with a guilty plea. So his way out of this was to instruct his attorneys to go for a necessity defense. So he basically argued that the bombing was necessary to prevent more deaths down the line. Do you, do you sense this kind of thinking is imprinted in much right-wing extremism that, that, that exists today, because that really chimed with me. It's something that you hear these people saying in Vox Pops, on, on sort of, uh, you know, fringe radio shows and right-wing channels all the time, that we're doing this to defend ourselves effectively. Absolutely. And, and uh, I mean, if you uh, ask the... Uh, the the people who invaded the Capitol on January 6, 2021, you know, why were they doing it? Is that they were doing it to protect the rights that were going to be destroyed if Joe Biden became president, above all the right, the, the, the right to keep and bear arms. Um, this idea that um, they are the real patriots, they are the ones who are protecting the Constitution. You know, there's there's a long history of of extremists in our country claiming the mandate of the Constitution, claiming the mandate of patriotism. Uh, much of Jim Crow segregation in the South was defended as protection of the constitutional heritage of this country. McVeigh's lawyers, I think quite properly, said, you, you, you can't claim that you bombed uh, the Murrah building, the Alfred P. Murrah building, that was the building in Oklahoma City, uh, because you had a necessity to do so. But that idea that um, he was the real patriot, that he was the one who was preventing future harm is, is, a, uh, is a real one and, and widely shared. Did the federal government do enough, in your view, post Oklahoma City to find out how young men were being radicalized like this and deal with the issue, or was it largely ignored? I would describe it somewhere in, in, in between. The investigation of right-wing extremism, while it picked up right after the bombing in, in 1995, it dropped off considerably after September 11th, 2001. You had a Republican administration, the George W. Bush administration, which was sympathetic in some ways to the to to the right wing, but also created this perception which endures to this day in many circles in the United States that all terrorism is Islamic radicals, that all terrorism ultimately comes from Osama bin Laden and his, his heirs. And that idea is one that I don't think the federal government uh, has done enough to, to refute. It's better now than it was, but in that respect, I think the federal government really fell short. My personal instinct has always been that what happened uh, from Trump onwards was almost like a backlash against 
having had a, a president of color. There, there was almost this kinetic energy pent up like in a spring where, you know, the, the far right people who have huge racial issues considered it the ultimate offense to be ruled at the federal level by a black man. And what happened with Trump and, and, and after that was a sort of a push back against that. When I uh, started to write Homegrown, one of the things I wanted to do, especially at the end of the book, was carry the story forward. I mean, obviously, that's, that it, it would be a separate book, but I have a lengthy epilogue in Homegrown about uh, right-wing extremism and violence uh, after 1995. And the thing that you see is how much it picked up after Barack Obama became president. There was a period of real quiescence during the George W. Bush presidency. But, but the rage at the first president of color was intense. And the number of plots, many of them fortunately foiled by the authorities, but the number of plots and the amount of violence and uh, critically, the existence of the internet and social media. McVeigh didn't have that. McVeigh told his lawyers in a phrase that, that, that really haunts me to this day is, I know there's an army out there of people like me, but I just couldn't find them. He didn't have the internet in the mid-1990s. Once uh, communication became so easy, it was easy for these extremists to find each other. That plot I mentioned um, to kidnap the governor of Michigan, the de Democratic governor of Michigan, was hatched over Facebook uh, private chats. If you look at um, some, of, some of the mass shootings, and unfortunately, as many people know, we have a lot of mass shootings in the United States, Many of them were internet-inspired. Uh, the guy who shot up the, uh, the Walmart in El Paso, Texas, the synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the, the grocery store in Buffalo, New York, all of them worked off uh, the models uh, that they found on the internet. And that's really uh, something that makes the problem that McVeigh reflected in the mid-'90s scarier and bigger today. To wrap things up, I will ask you the big imponderable. What do we do? I mean, what can be done? It, it, it is by its nature, this thing that is fed by anger is exacerbated the more you try to put a lid on it. And I, I find myself at a loss as to how do we reopen the communications line, lines? How do we talk these people down from the ledge? Well, you know, it's it's extremely difficult, especially these days in the United States. We live not just in a polarized political environment, but a polarized media environment. You know, when, when I was a kid, uh, there were only three television networks and they all did the news more or less down the middle. And there was a shared sense of the facts of what was going on in the country, mm. if not what should be done about it. Yeah. Now you have a situation where in terms of television, you have Fox News, which is where the conservatives get their information, MSNBC, or to a certain extent, CNN, where liberals go. You can choose your facts. Choo choose your facts, and which makes it much harder to bring the country together. I'm afraid one answer I have is a pretty blunt tool, which is law enforcement. 
mean, law enforcement has to be more vigilant and aggressive in, in uncovering these plots, as they did in Michigan, fortunately, in investigating and, and stopping these plots before violence takes place. You know, that, that doesn't deal with root causes, but, you know, I, I'm somewhat at a loss on the root cause issue. I mean, I have to say that from my experience in my home country, in Greece, I had severe reservations when um, the state decided to charge and prosecute Golden Dawn as a criminal organization, you know, our very far right wing party. But actually, you know, the facts came out, people saw what they were up to, they went to jail, and their movement died a death. Well, and, and there there are some... Uh, signs, though some contradictions, that the arrest of a thousand people at the Capitol has persuaded their allies to say, you know, we didn't get much out of this. A lot of our friends are going to jail. Maybe this isn't the way to go. Now, there is also a lot of anger still out there in the country. And so it's not a it's not a universal reaction, but you know, I do think the government is doing the right thing by by casting a very wide net among lawbreakers from January 6th. Jeffrey Jubin, thank you so much for such an illuminating chat and and such a, a an enjoyable and a, and actually surprising book in its in its detail. Uh, Homegrown Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right Wing Extremism is now out. Uh, thank you, Jeffrey. Thanks, Alex. Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day, so if you like our work, you can and should support our work on the funding platform Patreon for as little as £3 a month. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I leave you with the words of Jeffrey Tubin from Homegrown. From the moment the Oklahoma City bombing took place, it was portrayed as the work of outsiders, of individuals who were sinister anomalies from American norms. In the first hours after the attack, this became an effort to blame the attack on foreigners, especially Islamic radicals from the Middle East. After McVeigh was arrested and the evidence against him became overwhelming, a different kind of distancing took place. To this day, McVeigh is often described as a survivalist, an isolated and eccentric figure. Sound familiar? This is Alex in the bunker, saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alexandre. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, the managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Chris Jones, Kasia Tomashevich, and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott, original music by Jay Bailey. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.